from Ranch TV Studios, this is Beef with Millennials, hosted by Allie, Julia, and Corey. We are here to give you the facts on beef production and how we, as millennials, can make an impact on the future of the beef industry. So Julia, who do we have with us for this episode? Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Rhonda Miller, a meat science professor at Texas A&M. We have a few questions for her here. She has a wonderful amount of experience in the industry. She's a beautiful resource, and we'll be able to get some good questions here and have some available information for people that have regular questions about the meat science industry in relation to agriculture. To begin with, Dr. Miller, uh, where did you grow up and what's your background in agriculture? Give us a little bit of a background there. Well, thank you very much. Julia, I actually grew up in northeastern Colorado. It's the part of Colorado that most people don't see. <laughs> and if they do, they don't want to stay there. It's the flat <laughs> plains. It's right up. Actually, I grew up right up against the Nebraska-Kansas state line. And I grew up on a... Uh, a livestock and cropping operation that had been in my family for four generations. So we had cattle and sheep and horses were my first love and then we had dryland wheat and alfalfa. So I grew up in that very small community where my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather and most of my great uncles and the whole big family. Uh, it's a county that has a population of 4,000 people wow. at, this, at this time. <laughs> wow. And I don't know what it had then. I never looked that up. But, uh, so it's a small rural community and uh, I grew up with agriculture. Uh, it's always been my first love. I thought it was a, a a great opportunity to ride the bus home and get to do chores. Right? <laughs> wow. Because I got to feed my animals then. But uh, And so then I went to Colorado State University where I actually received a BS degree in agricultural communications okay. and then got a, a master's and a PhD in animal science. And I did my PhD work at the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center in Clay Center, Nebraska as part of uh, USDA Agricultural Research Service. So that's kind of how I ended up here. Wow, and so you have worked in industry, you do have experience. Yes, after I finished my PhD at Colorado State, I grew up in Colorado and most of the economy and especially in the grain and the cattle business was driven by, at that time, a company called Monford of Colorado. Uh, Kenny Monford started that company. They had three 100,000 head feedlots and a packing plant, and they contracted almost all the grain. Okay. Uh, forward contracted it and also bought a lot of the cattle, and I had the opportunity to work there for four and a half years as director of research within the company. They also owned a further processing plant and a meat distribution system. And I got there and they said, well, we have two PhDs, you and your boss, and we need to expand our value added product. So that's what you're gonna do. <laughs> I'm like, wow, okay, yes, all you're right. like, wow, yes, thank yeah. you. <laughs> uh, thank you, yes. <laughs> wow, well, um, as I said earlier, you have quite a wonderful reputation in meat science, so many accolades, you're very well respected. Um, and what, what actually started you on your path to meat science? What drove you to have a passion for, for meat in particular in regards to the industry? 
Well, so I, I grew up on a livestock operation, grew up through 4-H, and of course started judging livestock at, a, uh, at nine years of age and showed animals. And I went to Colorado State, and I'm like, oh, do I do the livestock judging team again? And I was getting a lot of pressure to go out for the livestock judging team. Mm -hmm. One of my really close friends said, they have this thing called meat judging. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what's that? And I happened to be a student worker for the two meat scientists at Colorado State. And they're like, oh, yeah, you should do this. So on a Saturday morning, I went with a bunch of other people at 7 in the morning and walked into a cooler at 32 degrees with about 300 people working with knives. <laughs> and I thought, I must be crazy, uh, but I like this. Wow, and, and so, that was the start. <laughs> yeah, that was the start. Wow, and, lovely. Uh, so I started on the meat judging team and said, oh, I like this. And still to this day, if I get to the point where I just feel I need to ground myself, I go to a meat cooler and smell it and grates and carcasses and then I feel grounded again. It's your place of peace. Yes, it's wow. my yeah, You found your passion. Yes, yes. Very lucky. And it's it's funny how many people that that happens to. Mm -hmm. That they have some experience like that. Yeah, nobody at home where I grew up, you know, there's a local locker plant. That was about it. But to think that there are real careers in meat science or that that aspect of agriculture was an opportunity. I mean, that wasn't even a door I had, you know, on my wall that, oh, do I want to try to open this door or not? I didn't even know it existed. And, and then I found out, I went to my first meat judging contest, I'm like, oh, there are people like me from almost, from all these states. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then you find out that there really is an industry. And, and I, I, I think the ironic thing is that that, uh, that judging experience, uh, Dr. Jeff Sable coached the A&M meat judging team mm -hmm. the year that I judged. Ray Riley was on that team, our meat <laughs> uh, lab manager. Dr. Dan Hale was on the Kansas State meat judging team. That's wow. how I met Dan Hale. Uh, Dr. David Lunt, who's over in our uh, dean's office, was um, at the on the Brigham Young team, and there, I mean, the num name of people, the number of people who I judged against that are now my professional colleagues is amazing. That's astounding. Yeah, yeah. what a small world. And I know that that year didn't produce an exceptionally wonderful group of people. I mean, it was just it was <laughs> like every year, right? So I I think that most of those people in those coolers would tell you. Uh, why am I spending a Sunday getting cold looking at me? <laughs> right? But there is a passion there that once you find it, you just stay with it. That's really great. That's really great. I love your comment about the finding piece in there. Yeah. Not many people would feel that way, but it's just really great. Yeah. Um, in regards to uh, your success, career-wise, academically, what would you say is your secret? Like to those of us still pursuing mm -hmm. our careers and getting to where we want to be, what? What do you feel got you there? What was your passion, your secret? Don't know if I had that many secrets. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think the biggest thing is, is that if there's a door and it opens, don't be afraid to walk through it. And you know, go out of your box. I, 
I was a first-generation uh, college, and I'm a little bit older, and so not only am I a first-generation, I am also a female, and women just didn't go to college in the community I grew up in. And I'm like, well, looks like fun to me. They have mountains in Fort Collins, you know, yes, it's not yes. the wind blows, but at least there's some mountains to keep it from blowing all the time. Uh, and but to take a chance and not be afraid to take a chance. And I can tell you, if you would have told me when I was in high school or even as an undergraduate that I would be that I'd have a PhD and that I would be doing research and teaching and that I'd be living in Texas, I would have just laughed at you. I would have said, what are you talking about? That's <laughs> not going to happen. But uh, I, I, I've always worked hard. Uh, I think I'm a kind of a people person and so that probably helps me as well. And when opportunities were presented, I said, oh, well, let's try it. And some of those opportunities, I said, no, this is not what I want. But, but I tried enough things to find something that I knew I was passionate about. And I tell my own children, go out and experience some other things. Do internships while you're in college. Go get some different work experiences. And sometimes you're going to find things that you say, whoa, I do not want to do that. But in all of that, you're going to find something that you love. And you don't want to wake up each day not, and say, you know, oh, I have to do this. You're going to have some of those days. But in general, I still think, oh, I get to go to work today. I get to come to A&M. I get to talk to other people about meat science. <laughs> I mean, yes. what a joy for me. Yes, I've absolutely noticed that. Yeah. I mean, having you in class this last semester, you took a topic that could have been very not interesting, and you made class exciting. You could see the passion every day that you taught. And it was something that really made the class great for me to be in. I never dreaded going to your class, ever. Huh. And now I know why. You, well, and passion. I might have changed your grade. No, <laughs> <laughs> no not joking. Yeah, yes. well, good. Thank you. That, that's that's you why know. I do it. You can yeah. Some professors just dredge through class, but mm -hmm. having you, it just doesn't feel that way. It's not, it's not like that. The passion is there. The love is mm -hmm. there. And you really spread that into the students. Me and my peers have talked about it. Oh, that, that's very, that's the best compliment I could ever have. Thank oh, you so much. Oh, of course. It's, it's yeah. genuine, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's, um, you, don't, you guys probably don't know this, but a lot of times when I'm up lecturing mm -hmm. or giving a talk, if I'm doing that to industry, in my mind I'm going, oh, I am. I am so happy. I'm. <laughs> I can see it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And uh, uh, my kids think that's very strange. <laughs> my husband's a much quieter person. He's also a professional. I don't know if he yeah. always feels that way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's more mild nature. Yes. So, yes. He'd yes. rather be doing the research. Yes. Yeah. In regards to being a meat science professional, what do you feel sets you apart from your colleagues within the industry? What do you feel makes you different? I think there are a couple of things. One is that within the meat science discipline, I kind of found my niche, and that happens to be evaluation of quality and sensory and eating quality and trying to understand a lot of those components. And that finding that niche that I 
was obviously very interested in, that I feel challenged, that I have had the opportunity to reach out not only to meet scientists but to beyond. Uh, you know, a couple of my really good, close personal friends as well as professional friends are not meat scientists, but they're sensory scientists. And I get, I call them and I kind of drug them into the meat industry a little bit, and <laughs> yeah. then they kind of pull me out of, of something. So I, I found that one thing that I felt that I could make a contribution to. And it also, I can go home and I can talk to uh, the friends of mine that I grew up with and I can talk about production and tie that to the eating quality. Uh, I can go to Brazil or Australia or any place like that and I always have something I feel like I can contribute. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it's a lot of fun. You get to eat all the time. <laughs> Sounds like, like you're the living embodiment of if you do what you love, you never work a day in your yeah, life. That's, that's right. what this yeah. sounds like to yeah. me. You take a picture of your salary and go, oh, they're really paying me to do this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What a blessing. It's just yeah. the cherry on top. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, in regards to the industry itself and products, how do you believe that meat science has actually improved through your time working in industry as well as in academia? I, I can tell you, I, I think I'm very blessed to have uh, started in industry right out of my PhD. Uh, the industry at that time was just growing. I mean, most people with a more of a research-based degree, whether that was a master's or a PhD, went into quality control type jobs. And the industry started looking beyond being just a commodity-based industry into value-based uh, products and development of other products. And you look at a Cargill or a Tyson, the old even uh, you know IBP before they became part of Tyson. And in the, in the mid-80s, all of those companies started pushing into value-added and understood that uh, you know, they had a commodity-based business that they were all good at, but that had fairly small margins, 1%, 2%, and that they uh, could take and expand the type of products that are available to consumers, whether that was in the retail sector or the food service sector. And that's where the biggest growth has been. And when I was at Monford, which was the third largest packer at the time, and the largest lamb packer at the time, um, I was director of research and development, and I was an N of one. <laughs> and then after a year, I got to hire one person. Wow. And by the time I left, four and a half years later, there were three of us. <laughs> and we had shown how we could make money for the company. We had, uh, we had one plant that was a value-added plant when I first went to work there, and we put a new plant into operation. And, you know, we did it all. We worked with chefs, we worked with our different clients, we worked with the, uh, we did all the scale up in the plants. So the plant managers actually and I report to the same boss. Oh. That was always interesting. Uh, and we worked with quality control, worked throughout the whole system, helped get the labels. And I walked into Tyson in their innovation center the first time 
and I went up above and they're showing me all the departments and I went, you have 80 people and I used to do some aspect of all of that. Now, at a much, much smaller scale, <laughs> right? Because at that time, we didn't probably have as many projects. But that was when it hit me where our industry is, mm -hmm. where we started and where we came from. Because IBP had mainly quality control when we were doing product development and then okay. just got into that and Cargill, you know, you look at where, where, what they've done. When, right when I came to A&M in 88 was when Cargill was doing the Case Ready Meat program and they converted one of their portion control operations in Rockport uh, into their Case Ready program. And that didn't take off, but the step was in the right direction. So. That's why I think there's so many opportunities for young people in meat science because we've seen that conversion into from a commodity-driven industry into a consumer-driven industry. And um, it's the nice thing because there are jobs. Yes. And there are so many different career paths that depending on what you like, you don't just have to be a quality control technician, not that that isn't a good thing, but there are marketing, we see our students move into marketing jobs. You can do peer product development. Maybe you want to do more on the legal side, and so you could move into that area, or on the food safety side. And um, I think our, our industries moved into being more of a professional industry because of that. There's a lot more career opportunities. Yes. Wow. Yeah, when I was in industry, I, there was really nobody to talk to about, uh, you know, kind of a lot of the things that I taught you and, mm -hmm. in class and, and my students, and they would have said, oh, you're just being a smart aleck now and really trying yeah. to, you know, show that you're really smart. But now there are lots of people to talk about those yeah. sort of things with, as wow. we saw in the field trip, right? Oh, yes, yeah. yes, that industry trip was priceless. Yeah. Um, and then I know we spoke about a few moments ago, you have a lot of experience with sensory, and I know that really ties into consumer satisfaction. How do you feel that as an industry, we can continue to improve the quality of beef? Where do you think that we could make the most improvement in order to have more consumer satisfaction on the tail end? And one of the things that we've learned in the last really six to seven years, my colleague Chris Kurth and I have been doing a lot of work looking at consumer uh, perception, uh, factors that uh, can affect demand. And I've done consumer work since the 1990s and one of the biggest things that's changed with consumers today is that flavor is a bigger driver of consumer satisfaction. Okay mainly because we, not because tenderness and juiciness, the other two factors are are not important, it's that we fixed more of that problem, reduced the variation. And so as we look at beef as a component of a meal, uh, flavor's a big, big driver. When we talk to consumers, the one thing that they talk about beef is they love the flavor of beef. They love the way it tastes. They like, they like beef, and <laughs> yes. so that's really good. And uh, then the next thing that we see that they want, they want beef, and they, a lot of our uh, 
uh, heavy, and even some of our light beef consumers understand the nutritional benefits of beef as a good source of protein. And it's always interesting to be in a one-on-one -on -one interview and have a consumer kind of lecturing you back yes. on, well, it's an excellent source of protein and it's good building. And I'm just sitting there going, yay. The, yeah. the industry's done a good job of getting that message out. But we see that consumers want the versatility of beef to be able to use it in different uh, different flavor profiles and different meals. They want variety. Uh, they want things, they don't want to eat just steak and potatoes every night. Yeah. They want, you know, um, I always kind of joke about, you know, I never knew what Thai food was until uh, the last 10 <laughs> yeah. years, right? I'd never eaten Thai food. They don't have yeah. that in whole Colorado. Oh. Even to this day, they don't, oh, you know, man. but they just have two restaurants. So, you know, what can you expect? <laughs> and one of them, uh, and one of them is uh, actually a Chinese restaurant, which is kind of interesting. But, but, you know, consumers today want more flavor profile. They, they are willing to uh, be a little bit more adventuresome. Yeah. Uh, whether that's eating out or preparing things at home. And. Beef can fit into that very well. I, I think that as we've developed multiple cuts and looked at individual cuts, as our industries move from you know, subprimals to uh, bone-in subprimals to boneless primals to individual muscles, we're, we're enabling consumers to do some of that, to yeah. fit it into uh, either meals that they're preparing that have variety to it, or being able to go out into the restaurant. Yeah, showing them its versatility yes. as a product, yeah. as a protein product. Yeah. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the last things I wanna address with you today actually ties back into this question a little bit. I know last week we spoke about how you've done some research regarding millennials, which are the up and coming yeah. consumer in grocery chains, in regards to beef like consumption and their feelings in regards to the industry. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned through that research? Oh, I'd love to tell you about that. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I've had the opportunity through a, a number of Beef Checkoff funded projects to do uh, look at consumer um, attitudes and trying to understand some of these drivers uh, of, of, of things. And so one of the things that we did is we looked at millennials versus non-millennials because we hear so much about millennials that millennials are our future beef eaters that they don't know how to cook they don't know that much mm -hmm. about beef so we went out and uh, did a couple of studies where we selected millennial and non-millennials and within each of those two age groups we had light beef eaters meaning people who ate beef uh, one or two times a month. Okay. So really light beef eaters. Very light, yes. Yeah, and heavy beef eaters is eating beef three or more times a week. Okay. So uh, we wanted to make sure that we had kind of those differences. And what we found out is that uh, the millennials and non-millennials, they like the same thing. We gave them beef that varied in tenderness and juiciness and flavor. Uh, we cooked it for them at central location tests and we went to the west coast, the east coast, the middle of the U.S. and the south 
and we brought consumers in and they were the same flavor, tenderness, and juiciness aspects were pretty much the same, even for the light beef eaters, wow. whether they were millennial or non-millennial. Um, for the light beef eaters millennial, we did see that they tended to be a little bit more concerned about diet health. Okay. A lot of them were also not as comfortable cooking at home. Mm. They didn't, uh, they felt that beef was a little bit more challenging as far as uh, finding recipes. They liked, almost all of them liked to eat a variety of things. And then the biggest thing though was price, that beef is more expensive. We asked them questions like, so when you go to the retail store and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to buy some beef today and they decide, and you decided not to, what happened? So most of the time, almost always, it was, it cost too much. And so we saw that price was a, a big driver. And I don't think that was a real surprise to anybody. Yeah. But they, but what was interesting is that Flavor was still their biggest driver, and they, most of them liked beef and wished that they made more money to buy beef more often. Oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah, and there are always those segments that don't. And, and think about this way, too. We were in Portland, Oregon asking these questions, so okay. they don't understand. They don't really merchandise beef in Portland, Oregon uh, based on USDA quality grades. And you go to the retail store, there's nothing about choice. There's really? nothing about select. It's really brand identified uh, type of products. And so when we talked to them about quality grade, they didn't understand that. They always felt guilty they didn't. It's always <laughs> interesting, no, that's all right. We yes. Don't tell us you, if you don't really know, don't tell us you know. And things that were important for them as we know are locally grown there were some that organic or grass-fed uh, sustainability those type of things which you expect to hear but we still heard that they liked beef yeah and but it it, it was as they 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 also told us things like if we buy beef where it costs a little bit more than than the other protein sources and we try a new recipe and it doesn't taste right, they blame themselves. Okay. They don't blame the beef, they blame themselves because they don't have the confidence in their cooking and preparation and their oh. knowledge of that. Uh, where with the, with the non-millennials, the older group, they tended to, um, the, the things that kept them from being heavy beef eaters were more uh, related to nutrition or uh, price was also a big driver for, for them as well. And then we found other drivers such as uh, locally grown and things like that. But, okay. So I think as a beef industry, I found that very positive. I think that millennials do have a uh, association with beef and that they like beef and we went to areas that weren't always considered to be beef big beef consuming areas but consumers 
didn't have all the negative views that I thought they were going to have yeah. or that we anticipated when we went there. Um, but, you know, they only make so much money. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, most of them are in their lives where they're building their careers. I agree. I do. I do feel like that's very positive. And as people in our generation mm -hmm. continue to mature and get their career started and stuff, I feel like that that preference for beef will be there. And then at that time, they'll begin to have the funds for it more. And I'm really, it's really nice to hear that information. It's something that the stuff you see on social media and all of that doesn't always portray that in the same light. But actually hearing it from a research standpoint is something that gives me faith, you know, within the industry. Yeah. And one thing I found interesting is that those people who are very, have very active lifestyles, and you know, not all of them, but a majority of those people understand the, new, the value of beef as part of, uh, from a nutritional standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, they understand the importance of protein, the importance of high quality protein, the importance of iron and those things. And that's nice to hear yeah. from millennials who might be like beef eaters that are, you know, very active. Uh, yeah, that is great news. Yeah, wow. So we're doing some good things with our Beef Checkoff program, getting that nutritional information, uh, information yeah. out there. Um, I don't, and I you know not that we need to stop, but or but we yeah. but but we've gotten some good return on our investment. Yeah, I think that's there. good progress, and hopefully, I know the Texas Beef Council offers hundreds and hundreds of recipes that I've sifted mm -hmm. through in regards to beef and I feel like that's also a good resource for people like you said our age that don't feel confident cooking so if they could just look there and search a little bit farther on the internet then they have all the resources they need to continue to develop their their passion for beef. Yeah well and one thing that I found interesting we asked them questions about um, uh, you know about where, where when some of their decision making you know how do you decide what recipes you're going to use? I I felt like, as we've done many uh, studies where you go in the retail meat case and you do measurements, that the amount of information at the retail meat case has actually declined. I don't have any data to support that. But there isn't as much point of purchase material. And it's like, well, is that good or bad? Most people are getting their information and their recipes off of the internet. It's true. You know, that's yeah. where then of course they may have their phone right there doing it <laughs> while they're shopping. We 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 could see that in a different study that we did where people would be doing that a little bit. But wow. It, yeah. It's like, well, I guess we don't need that as, as much. much anymore. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. well, at least I suppose they have the internet as a resource, you know. Yeah. Still eating beef, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, I believe that's all that we have for you so far. Uh, we really do appreciate you taking the time to come in here. I know you're a very busy woman, and so having you here is really a pleasure, and I believe that it'll be a great source of information for everybody who has questions in regard to the industry in particular. So thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Glad to do it. You know that I always talk. I think that's all we have for today. Thanks to Julia and Dr. Rhonda Miller for a great interview. And if you want to learn more on meat science and keep up with us here at Ranch TV, visit our website at ranchtv.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Also to stay up to date with Beef with Millennials, follow our Facebook page at Ranch TV and our Twitter and Instagram at Ranch TV U. Have a great weekend and join us next time at Beef with Millennials.